In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. For Michael Dennehy, recorded back in 1991 by a local artist for Michael. Crystal Dennehy hands me the small cassette tape with Michael's sweet face on the cassette label. The antiquated technology, a reminder of just how much time has passed since her son disappeared. Michael, where are you? Fast forward to March 24, 2021. The Victoria Police send out the following tweet. Have you seen missing man, Michael Dennehy? Missing man. 30 years after Michael's abduction, the police want to shift the focus from that of a missing child to that of a missing man. If Michael is alive now, he'd be 35 years old. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael, Season 3 of Island Crime. Of course, the absolute best ending for Michael's story would be finding Michael alive. Until there's proof to the contrary, that hope remains. And so when I get a message from a missing person advocate about a tip suggesting Michael is alive, I follow up immediately. I speak to a woman who now lives on the east coast of Canada. Her story is long and bizarre. She tells me decades ago she befriended an older American man living in the Lower Mainland. The man shared a home with the teen he claimed was his nephew. Later, this man will change his story to say he cares for the teen at the request of a dying friend. The teen is out of control and in trouble with the law. Years later, as he's dying, this man confesses that the young man who was in his care is Michael Dunahy. My source sends me a photo of this young guy and my heart stops. He looks like a young Bruce Dunahy. I try to speak with the young man, now in his 30s, but he repeatedly blocks any attempt to reach him. The woman tells me she reported all of this to the police years ago, but felt her information wasn't taken seriously. I ask if she's open to me following up with the police directly. She says okay, and then I wait. It's a long shot. I haven't told Bruce and Crystal, I don't want to raise false hopes. And then confirmation. The Victoria police say the man is not Michael Dennehy. This sort of thing has happened a number of times over the years. 
Might a Surrey man really be Victoria's long-lost Michael Donahue? Greg Harper is live in Surrey with the very latest on this story. Greg. Jody, there is a young man who's living somewhere in Surrey right now who reportedly has been posting online uh, saying that he often gets told he looks a lot like Michael Dunahy. Uh, Someone emerges with a questionable childhood. Someone who could be Michael. But so far, the real Michael Dunahy has yet to be found. Uh, Victoria Police say they have informed the Dunahy family about this, uh, saying they owe it to the family to follow, to see this. When Michael vanishes, his sister Caitlin is just a baby. Today, she's an adult with a child of her own. The afternoon I meet Caitlin, she's running late for dinner with her family. Her mom, Crystal, is making donairs, and the home is filled with the smell of fresh herbs and spices. Caitlin is juggling work, home, a child, and husband. But when she walks into the house, she looks happy and full of life and energy. She is an attractive young woman with thick, long, blonde hair, athletic like her mom. Caitlin Dunahy. I have a husband and a daughter and live in Langford. As I look at her, I find myself wondering how much Michael might look like his sister if he is alive today. Although Caitlin grew up alone, she doesn't see herself as an only child. I, yeah, I've always heard them say they have two kids yeah like that was normal like I have a brother and they yeah. have two kids and even when people ask me I have a brother and he's just not here mm-hmm. it's always an awkward topic mm-hmm. to, when you first meet someone so until I really know a person like if it's going to be a one-time two-time meeting I don't yeah. necessarily throw it into conversation and they're like oh do you have any siblings I say yes but I was raised as an only child Bruce and Caitlin talk about how important it was to them to give Caitlin as normal a childhood as possible. And it's not until later that Caitlin begins to understand just how unusual her family circumstances are. I don't think it was till I was like middle school, late high school age that I really realized how different my life was. Like I knew my brother was missing and I knew it was something we did every year for the run and the baseball tournament and... I understood it all, but I don't think I realized how different that made my family to every other family. Um, And then once other kids in my grades started knowing who I was or other people started recognizing and asking and, and pointing out that you're the sister of a missing child, that's when it really kind of, I think, resonated that it was different. And as Caitlin grows older, she realizes her parents are more protective of her. All my other friends didn't quite have, I don't want to say helicopter, but like if I was going to a friend's house, I'd have to phone as soon as I got there, even though my mom could watch me walk all the way up to the corner and they were the first house. And if I didn't phone, there was trouble. (laughs) But none of my other friends had parents that needed that or that checked in as frequently or were as aware of what was going on as my parents. So that's when I started to realize that my parents were a bit more strict. She says her parents have always been open to talking about Michael, but it's not until she's older that she really begins to ask questions. She feels her brother's absence most keenly when she gets married. That was actually one thing that was weighed very heavily on me before Will and then I got married that I was just kept thinking like 
my brother won't be at my wedding. He won't be there to give a speech. Like, there, that was the first time that in a family event that I really felt him, his presence, not being there. Like, we didn't make a big to-do out of it, but leading up to it, I had a lot of stress thinking about it. And there were a lot of tears pre-wedding. It is becoming apparent herself that has really opened her eyes to what her parents have experienced. You know, there's days where it's really hard to be a mom of a new baby. And I was thinking, I was six months old and you lost another child. How on earth did you care for a six-month-old baby after your other child was taken? Like, it just, now that I'm a parent, I, I think I feel more for what they went through. Oh, for sure. That it's happened. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my mom really, like, I can't compare it to my dad, but, like, the mom, the maternal feeling, it's... It's crazy. Like, I just feel like I would have crumbled under all of that. I don't know that I, I don't know how I would go on. And that's the fact that she gave so much to me, so much of herself and was so involved and 100% present when I needed her. I just don't know how she did that. Uh, my mom and I are definitely closer and I just feel like she handles the stress better than he does. Um, he's a very closed person with his emotions, obviously. They're, they just handle it differently, so I feel like it's easier to talk to her about it. And I feel like she's more in, more involved with the investigation as well. Caitlin's a mom, and her child Harper is now a toddler. And I have to tell you, when Harper arrives at the Dunahee home the afternoon I'm first there to meet with them, this child just lights up the room. Crystal and Bruce are transformed. The heaviness disappears. But I can't imagine how tough it must be for Caitlin to step into parenting her own child now. I mean, she's not at an age yet where I'm letting her go to a friend's house or walk to school on her own. So I know that once that time comes, there's definitely going to be an emotional, mental hurdle to get through. Right now having her it's not any fear for her it's more just like i said the men like processing what it is to be a parent and the, the thought of losing her or how my mom raised me and yeah there's just days where i'm like i don't feel adequate you know as a mom you have days where you just are like I don't know what to do now. I don't know how to make her happy. I don't know how to be there for her. I just need a nap. And, and when I feel that way, I just constantly was comparing myself to my mom in the beginning. And um, I've since talked to my mom about it too. Like I, she's just on this pedestal. and I don't know that I could ever be. <laughs> I don't know if I could ever be what she has been to me. She's amazing. From afar, you have to marvel at the Dunahees' strength and courage as a family. They stayed together, raised their daughter, and championed the fight for Michael through it all. Still. Everything's not bubblegum and rainbows for sure, but um, I think my perception is my mom's way of coping with it was pouring her heart and soul into preventing it for someone else. She's an advocate, she's, it's all about awareness, and her, 
smothering me with as much love as possible and as much support as possible. Um, whereas my dad is a bit more withdrawn and there are things he did to, to support, like he coached my baseball team and tried to be interactive that way, but we've just never had a very close relationship. Um, and I, I feel like things would be different if Michael weren't missing. Um, I know it weighs very heavily on him. And I think he, I think he struggled with forming a relationship with me because of the heartbreak he had already had. But now I see him with Harper and see the way he interacts with her and it's, it's really nice. And I think, I think she's kind of his second chance at a relationship with me. I watch Bruce carrying Harper around the living room, clearly, totally besotted with his granddaughter. But the question mark that is Michael looms in ways large and small over this family. When one of Michael's grandmas passes away, she leaves an inheritance to all of the grandchildren, including Michael. In order for funds to be distributed to the rest of the grandchildren, the family would have to declare Michael dead. But that is not something any of the Dunahees are prepared to do. And that's when it really started to like hit me, the level of frustration. And um, I just think it's horrible that you're gonna force a family to declare a missing person deceased, and if they declare him deceased, the investigation stops. So of course they'll never do that, which I agree with 100%. But my dad said to me at that point, we will never do it. So after we're gone, it's on me to decide when the investigation stops. I've never heard them even consider stopping. Today, Caitlin is involved in annual events to raise awareness of Michael's case. She's also the main administrator of the We Will Never Forget Michael Dennehy Facebook page, something she took on after reading disturbing posts on a page dedicated to Michael. The new group is now almost 10,000 strong. The main purpose, of course, is to keep the hope alive, hope that Michael will one day return to his family. But even that hope comes with its own set of worries for Michael's sister. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I do hope he's out there. Um, I just can't help but think what, you know, this late in life, how it would be to reintroduce him into family, though. Uh, I hope he's having an amazing life with whoever took him. I hope he was raised by a family that couldn't have children and just... Yeah. smothered him with love. Like, I, I really hope that he wasn't struggling or in pain or anything. Um, but assuming he had that great life and we find him, we're just ripping apart his childhood now. And that's one thing that selfishly we want him back. And I could never say otherwise, but if that means ruining his whole perception of his life, there's no winning. Um, you know, on the other hand, he had, I don't, I don't know, it just, you know, we bring him home to us and we start to have another, you know, 
get to know each other and build a family relationship and what if they were amazing to him but now of course they're going to be punished for what they did and I think they deserve to be but yeah I just feel like there's no winning if Michael is alive DNA feels like one of the ways he could potentially be found I'm Cece Moore. I'm the chief genetic genealogist at Parabon Nanolabs, and I'm also the founder of the DNA Detectives. Cece Moore is a big name in this field, one of the first I find as I begin my research. She even had her own show, The Genetic Detective, on ABC for a while. I reach out to her about Michael's case. It's a long shot, but I think it's worth a try. And she surprisingly responds to me almost immediately. Consider this very important. And I've been trying to get the word out about this, so I'm happy to do it. I guess I'm one of the pioneers of using autosomal DNA for genealogy purposes. And I've been promoting the idea of direct-to-consumer DNA testing for over a decade now. I first started interested in my own family learning about my own genetic heritage, discovering long-dead ancestors, but I quickly changed my focus to helping people of unknown parentage, like adoptees, uh, foundlings, donor-conceived individuals, to find their biological families. And then in the last three years, I started helping law enforcement on criminal cases, mostly identifying murderers and rapists, but also helping to identify unidentified victims like John and Jane Doe. So since I started working with law enforcement, I've helped in 155 law enforcement cases with successful identifications. Cece urges people who have missing loved ones to consider DNA testing. So the word has gotten out much less about the possibility of people with missing family members finding them in the consumer DNA testing databases. And I have long been promoting this idea that anybody who has a missing family member, whether it's a child or an adult, should get their DNA in all of the consumer DNA testing databases because there's always the chance that they're out there somewhere or that they had children or even grandchildren if it's an old case and that somebody will take that DNA test and you'll find each other again. Now, you know, of course, in cases where there's been no body found, you don't know if that person was kidnapped to, to be murdered or perhaps to be raised by someone else or maybe sold into adoption. And so there is always a chance that that person is out there somewhere and they just don't know their true identity. Because I do think it's so important for the families of missing children to get this message. And that is get your DNA in all of the consumer DNA testing databases because you just never know. That person could test because they're interested in learning about their family tree, not knowing that the people that raised them are not their biological relatives, or they could have children or even grandchildren if it's an older case that might test. And there's always that possibility. You know, it's a bit like finding a needle in a haystack, but it, it is possible. 
I hate to get people's hopes up. I've I've worked with a few families like this, gotten them kits and encouraged them. And I, in a way, I feel guilty getting their hopes up. But you know, if it happens one time where we get a reunion, it's worth it. If one child is returned to their family, I think it's worth it. Recently, a baby kidnapped from a hospital in the 1960s was identified through DNA. My point has been proven uh, through the Paul Franzak case. I said all along we needed to make sure his biological relatives had their DNA in the databases. And sure enough, you know, it took a few years, but the missing Paul Franzak's daughters did take a DNA test and they had no idea that their father was the real Paul Franzak. And so that's a case where there was a newborn that was kidnapped from his mother's arms in the hospital in Chicago in the 60s. It was a huge manhunt, but they were never able to find that stolen baby. And now it turns out he was raised by somebody as their son. So whether it was the kidnapper who raised him or whether that baby was sold through a black market adoption, we don't know. But he was out there not knowing his true identity. And we have over 30 million people that have tested across these databases. And there is a chance that that missing person might be in there. I won't go into detail about the Franzak case here. That's a whole other story and a fascinating one at that. But the point is that decades later, answers did finally come through DNA. Most of the families just know to have their DNA in the law enforcement databases for missing persons. And of course, if unidentified remains are found, then you know you could get that match there. Or if someone comes forward and says they have the suspicion they were kidnapped. But if someone was raised just not knowing their true identity or being very confused about that, instead they might test at a consumer DNA testing company. You know, they might just want to be very curious about their background. They wouldn't necessarily go to law enforcement because if they were quite young, they just might not remember what happened. And in his case, you know, he certainly could have been told, you know, a lot of untruths <laughs> as he grew up that have, have uh, made it difficult for him to know who he is. And, you know, there's always hope, I think. Until the, that body is found, there is hope that that person survived and was just raised by another family. I asked Cece what the Dunahees should consider when it comes to DNA and Michael's case. Yeah, you just need one family member in each database and then your DNA is in there fishing, basically. And you, if you do it, you should check the match list, you know, pretty often because people can opt out of matching as well. So if they got a really close match, they might get scared or confused and opt out. So I would recommend that if a family is doing this, that they have a family member that's designated to check those match lists very regularly. The more, the better. Not that I want anyone to be obsessive, but even you know, adoptees who are looking for their birth parents will often check their match list every single day, hoping for a significant match or a closer match that will finally resolve their mystery. So it's, it's similar to that. Um, you want to make sure you see that match before somebody runs away scared and that I think my experience working with adoptees you know really informs this a lot and I think it's why I started thinking in this direction and I've seen so much of it through my adoption work I don't see why it couldn't have happened this way.
Some of you have probably done the whole DNA kit thing, but I haven't, and I'm curious about what the process looks like. So here's a little inside baseball. It's really quite simple. I would recommend starting with an Ancestry DNA kit. Uh, they'll mail it to you. You spit in the tube, it's just saliva. You mail it back to the company. About a month later, you will get your match list. So they'll tell you your results are ready. Everything is online as far as receiving your results. They're not gonna mail anything back to you. You log into your account that you've set up when you first uh, received the kit. So let me backtrack a little. You order the kit, they mail it to you. There's a registration code in it. So you sign up online for an account, you enter that registration code, and you can put whatever name you want there. You can use an alias or you can use initials, whatever you prefer. And then you spit in that tube, mail it back, and they'll know whose DNA that is based on you entering the code into that account. So then you'll get your match list and you'll see cousins on there. You know, you may see you've got first cousins tested or second cousins or third. You'll have hundreds or thousands of matches. But obviously in these cases, we're looking for the very, very top of that match list, the closest matches, seeing if there's someone who's a parent-child match or a sibling match or even a grandchild match. Um, and then once you've completed the Ancestry DNA test, you can download your raw data. So you don't, you don't delete your results from that database. You leave them there so they're fishing. If you don't get that match right away, you could get it next month or next year or five years down the road. But you download your raw data, you can upload it for free to several other databases. So you go to Family Tree DNA, you do the free upload there so you're in their database. You go to MyHeritageDNA, you do a free upload to their database, and you go to GEDmatch and upload your DNA there in their database. And then you have to order a 23andMe kit separately. They don't accept uploaded data. So the two companies you have to spit in the tube for and mail it in and buy that kit are Ancestry DNA and 23andMe. So it's not too expensive. Each kit's about $100. You can wait till they're on sale. And so you can do it for less than $200 US um, and be in all five databases. So Michael is now a 34-year-old man, if he's mm -hmm. still alive. Mm -hmm. um, he would have to have his DNA uploaded to one of these sites in order for this to, to work. Is That's right. Right. Unless he had children. He may not be old enough to have children old enough to test. But yes, and that's what makes it like a needle in a haystack as compared to an adoption search or a law enforcement search, unidentified remains those we can find all of this person's cousins and then reverse engineer their own family tree and ancestors from that. And so that you can solve even if you don't have any close matches. You know, you could use third, fourth, fifth cousins to identify who that person's birth family is. This is different because it has to be that person or one of their descendants for you to get that meaningful match. And so it's not nearly as effective as it would be for someone searching for their birth family. For instance, if he tested, not knowing his true uh, biological heritage, he might find the family even without 
them being tested because he might get second, third, fourth, fifth cousin matches in the database and then be able to figure out who he is eventually from there. Particularly if he came to my DNA detectives group, you know, we would help him figure out who his birth family was. And so it could happen even if their DNA wasn't in the database, but it's going to obviously be quickest and most straightforward if very close family members have put their DNA in those databases. If Michael is alive, he could be anywhere. Cece explains that the vast majority of the testers are from the U.S., but over the last few years, there's a lot more Canadians. This could potentially be a goldmine for law enforcement, except that due to privacy considerations, most don't allow police to access their information. The biggest companies terms of service bar law enforcement's use of their databases. And so the only people that are gonna be in Ancestry DNA and 23andMe, the two largest databases, are people that can spit in that tube and mail it in. You can't get crime scene DNA into their databases. You cannot get unidentified remains into their databases. Uh-huh. We are limited on those cases to only two databases, and those are GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. And they happen to be the two smallest databases. So we're working with only about 1.5 million profiles. Whereas if you can get your DNA into the other databases, there's over 30 million people tested. So you're comparing against 30 million profiles approximately. You know, and the reason you have to be in all the databases is that they have different people in them. You know, you'll find some of the same matches across all of them, like I'm in all the databases, but most people only buy one kit and they're only in one database. And so if they're interested in their health results, they're likely to be in the 23andMe database. And so even though that's one you can't get into for free with an upload, I really recommend people get their DNA in there if they're searching for someone like this, because it's a very different group of people that that test appeals to. And then the people in Ancestry.com are more interested in their genealogy, their family tree. And so it's, you know, there's some overlap, but there's a lot of unique uh, profiles in each database. And the Ancestry DNA database is probably getting close to 20 million people now. And 23andMe has over 12 million. And so you just never know which test or which database someone could be in. And that's why it's just so important to make sure you have all of them covered. And it doesn't have to be mom who does everyone, you know, it could be a sibling. It just has to be a close family member. We all know it's a long shot. Right. And I don't want to get anyone's hopes up, but it's certainly an avenue worth exploring. Yes, it's a long shot. Yes, it's searching for, you know, the needle in that haystack, but it can happen. And I am sure it's going to happen again for somebody. There are, of course, ethical concerns and privacy risks associated with the private DNA business. And yet, DNA has the potential to help families of the missing and murdered find answers. And so I am unsurprised to learn the Dennehys have already taken this step. I discussed this with Crystal and Caitlin on a Zoom call one night. And later, when I'm back at the Dennehy home, I sit down at their dining room table and Crystal opens up her laptop to show me how she is searching for Michael online. So it gives you your, what your history is? Oops. Yeah. Touch screen. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's me. 52% England. 
39. A little bit of Scottish in there. <laughs> yeah, so it goes through it. Tells you where you came from. Oh, right. Okay. So it's kind of cool. Okay. But obviously not the right connections are being made. And then the matches. The matches find cousins, like first and second cousins. Oh. There's here. Oh, there it is. Right. So apparently the higher this is, the closer they are. I see. Okay. And so the, the hope would be that Michael at some point would question his background, put his profile up here. Yeah. And then he would, since this is the close family. Yeah. So that his numbers would be obviously higher than that. So Ben, I know is my cousin. That's my, my birth, birth sister was also put up for adoption. That's her son. Oh. And I don't know who this is, who apparently is a first, second cousin. So she's higher, so she's more direct than he is. Hmm. So that was, a, that was a new one that came in. I, did, I said I had a new connection, but I didn't know. Right. I, I don't know who she is. Crystal is adopted, and she also finds members of her birth family here. The police assist the Dennehys in getting set up for this in recent years. And police have also managed to get Michael's DNA. With technology, and because of his toys hadn't been touched by anybody else, mm -hmm. so the toys that he played with most of, and uh, his hat that he had had, they, were, they actually cut little chunks out of it, mm -hmm. and they were able to build, from our DNA, build, fill in the missing strings with technology, Isn't the way it is. amazing? So now that they actually do feel that they have the proper string of DNA. Crystal has been living with Michael's disappearance for 30 years. But just think about the strength it must take to sit down and discuss the police finding your little boy's DNA on his old toys, or cutting patches from his little hat. It's science, but it's also real-life heartache. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. DNA is one way Michael could be found. Over the years, people have also seen themselves in the computer-generated likenesses released on milestone anniversaries. But none of these young men have turned out to be Michael. For the 30th anniversary, police elect to try something different. I am Virginia Bernier. I am a corporal with the RCMP in uh, British Columbia. Virginia is an RCMP forensic artist. And I am the only full-time dedicated forensic artist for the RCMP in Canada. My son was two years old when Michael went missing. So uh, at that time, I... I was, uh, when I saw the image, I thought, my gosh, he looks like my son. 
my son was very tall. He was three feet tall at a year, three foot four at two. So, you know, I'd look at his photos and I thought, gosh, it looks like Michael. I hope people don't think that, you know, this is Michael, his similar hairstyle, coloring features. So, you know, I'd look at my son and I just feel the anguish that the Donahues must feel. Anyone who's old enough to remember the day Michael disappeared will never forget it. So they know the feeling of worry and dread, despair, you know, everyone every day hoping that we would hear the news that Michael was found. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, I relate to it very, very closely. It's been, you know, a long time, over 30 years now, but uh, it feels like, in some ways, it feels like yesterday. In the years since Michael vanished, Corporal Bernier has honed a passion for art into a skill that could help find him. And I've been um, a police officer for almost 16 years. I grew up with a pencil in my hand, so, you know, to have a, you know, after a passion for art all my life, uh, I've always loved to draw. My mom used to find me falling asleep on the, the floor in the at home drawing. So uh, I wanted to incorporate that into what I do in policing and what more could you ask for? It's uh, very near and dear to my heart, what I do. I just grew up always loving art and I did uh, more pen and ink style of artwork and I still do, but, and I've gotten into watercolors and some acrylics, but my first love is, uh, is pencil. I, I love it, graphite artwork. There's just something about it. And it's very forgiving too, so. Yeah, so police work came after and then this is where I've uh, landed in my career and what a blessing. So what's the difference between an artist and a forensic artist? Um, to become a forensic artist, uh, you know, you're you're not just drawing, you can't just say, oh, I'm really good at drawing. You have to be an incredible listener and you have to have uh, phenomenal interviewing skills. You know, you're, you're, you're there sitting with a victim of crime or, you know, a witness sometimes, you know, sometimes they're, they're the better person to describe a suspect to you because the victim's too traumatized. So you're trying to extract an image of the suspect from the memory of this traumatized person to create a composite sketch. So we, we always say we're just simply moving the pencil for them and putting that image onto paper. But that, of course, is easier said than done. I find that often they're trying to block it out. And, and that's what makes it difficult. They're, they're trying not to remember what this guy looked like or this, this woman. I very rarely draw women, by the way. Um, so really to work with them, you are re-victimizing them. And so you have to be very, very cautious. You're putting them back into that, that mindset where they, this incident happened. So some of them, uh, I've had people break down. I've had people uh, flailing, you know, so so overcome with their emotions that it's really, um, you just have to have the right balance on how to deal with them. I, actually, I find it an honor. I absolutely love what I do. And I, I actually deal very well with victims and witnesses. Um, and, you know, when you get a, an email from the investigator that requested it, says, wow, your, your composite really worked. We have, um, look at this booking photo of the suspect. They're almost identical. Well, hey, isn't that the best? <laughs> and Corporal Bernier also works with the dead. I'm also trained in two-dimensional and three-dimensional facial reconstruction, like working with the human skull. Uh, 
And then uh, I also work with the BC Coroner Service on occasion to do post-mortem drawings, uh, you know, where the deceased uh, is, is not, you know, an image that's for public consumption. And then I would recreate what they had looked like beforehand so that we could release it to the media. So what's it like when she first sits down with the victim or witness to a crime? You usually have to you spend a bit of time bonding with them because sometimes they'll come in, they're, they're barely speaking, they're nervous, they're, they're twisting their hands together. You know, you can see by their body language, they're extremely nervous. I try not to meet with people too soon. Um, 48 hours is usually a good time, at, you know, after a crime. And it depends on the necessity from the investigators. If they're, you know, for public safety, they're trying to look for an image as soon as possible and there is no CCTV and they reach out to me, I I try and do it quickly. So, you know, you're having to get them um, in in a better frame of mind find a like subject to talk about um, you know I've dealt with children everywhere from six and I've worked all the way you know to seniors so um, I, I find you just find a like subject you have to be good at speaking to people and relating to them and listening to them and then the process of extracting information to create an image begins you know when that when I feel they're ready I'll go over suspect features um, you know their proximity in relationship to where this suspect was. And then uh, I go into more, I break down the features a little further, going to shape of the face, eyes, nose, mouth, ears, chin, hair, you know, any distinguishing marks, tattoos, scars, skin irregularities, jewelry, that kind of thing. And so I, I do that with them from their memory. And then sometimes we'll use a facial identification catalog to assist them. They can you know, where articulation might be an issue, they would leaf through and find, oh, his eyes were kind of like this guy, uh, but a little bit more like that guy because they were wider set apart, or, you know, his nose was like this guy, but his nostrils were bigger. When she's asked to create an image of an adult Michael Dennehy, Corporal Bernier is more than ready and willing to assist. I was approached by Victoria Police Department and they asked me, can you do an age progression rendering of Michael, you know, how he might look today? And I I was honored. I was thrilled to assist them. And, uh, you know, I wanted to bring that message to the public and remind them that someone out there knows what happened to Michael. She takes her time, wanting to be meticulous and make sure she gets it right. I worked really closely with Detective Sergeant Michelle Robertson of their Historical Case Unit Review and they're in Vic PD. She gathered um, photos from them, photos of themselves is, is really important, and photos of his sister Caitlin. So um, I, I relied very heavily on the photos of Caitlin because they, they looked a lot alike as small children. Of course, the pictures of Michael were very small and very limited and a different quality than we would have from today. So, um, you know, I was happy to, to have access to the photos from them. And then I consulted with Crystal a little bit more about um, hereditary hair loss, you know, maybe dental jaw issues, any distinguishing features, you know, that Michael may have had as he aged, you know, so they were wonderful. They, 
They gave me great photos. Caitlin's photos were, were phenomenal to work with. They definitely have a, a strong likeness. You know, we're trained, we look at that. You know, you look at a sibling, we try to find the sibling or parent at a different stage of their life and you know and think okay now so this child would be this old now and then you want to pick that target year and and work at that you know you have to always consider skin elasticity muscle tone you know collagen diminishes but really the lines that you see on your face as a child they're there today they just deepen over time there have been a number of computer-generated age enhancement images released to the public over the years. I wonder what role, if any, they play in the creation of this sketch. I don't at all. You know, both versions are, are acceptable. Uh, you know, some people like the computer-generated images. I actually feel strongly about the hand-rendered images. I, I think they, they catch the eye better and uh, really even the computer generated ones they need the input of a forensic artist who has the knowledge of the anatomy and aging and you know i still say the most predominant technique for age progression is the hand rendering it brings about a better finished product so yeah i i didn't rely on them at all i relied on the family pictures and the information i received from the Dennehy's. finally when she's satisfied with her sketch, Corporal Bernier sends it over to the island. I got it to where I was happy with it. Um, I sent it back to Detective Sergeant Robertson, and then she went over it with the Dunnehys. Um, They talked a little bit about changes for his hair, his hairstyle, um, that his hairline, you know, that kind of thing, and how he might wear it and how their family tends to, their hair is, you know, similar. So I changed that a bit. And um, we talked about the dental surgery because his sister has had dental surgery. And, you know, we took that into consideration. If somebody had per se abducted Michael, did they have dental surgery for him? Because he had a similar jaw to Caitlin. So that was something we took into consideration. There is one thing about the sketch the Dunahees want Corporal Bernier to change. I thought it was okay to do him smiling. I've been asked before, can you please make this person smile? Because I never knew my daughter without a smile. You know, the investigator said, can you please change it? Um, so I didn't think anything of it when I drew him with a smile. And, um, but I, I understand Crystal, she said I prefer him to not be smiling. I, and I understand. It's like a booking photo or a driver's license photo. You know, that's how you see people with a face that's just resting, right? So, you know, to not put a smile, that was no problem. It just wasn't for them. And I would fully understand that and respect that. And so in that world where Michael is still alive, if he Googles the name Michael Dennehy, Virginia's sketch is one of the first images he'll see it's gonna go around the world. And you know, I, I'm happy because, hey, who knows? Who knows if uh, one person out there might see it and say, you know what, I, I know that guy, right? So I, I think it's great that it lives on. I, I hope it's helpful. We all know an abduction of a child really is every parent's worst nightmare. So, you know, if I can utilize my skills and training in some way and create an image of how Michael might look today, then I've done something good. 
So I am honored. I'm glad they put their trust in me and I was proud to, you know, present them with a final image that they were pleased with. And, uh, you know, if it helps to identify Michael and bring him home to his family, that would be incredible. Finding Michael alive would be the best possible ending for the Dennehy family. But in his absence, they have kept his memory alive and brought meaning to his legacy through their advocacy work for missing children. In the episode ahead, a look at what has changed when it comes to the search for missing kids since Michael vanished 30 years ago, and how those changes likely saved the life of another little boy, abducted but returned safely to his family. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.